Hey family, this is Josh Eggerson. I want to thank you for tuning in to the Faith Restored podcast. Faith Restored is a local church with a global mission to reach the lost and teach the found. And it's our hope that the word you're about to hear today encourages you, inspires you, and builds your faith. If you'd like to learn more about Faith Restored, you can visit us on our website at faithrestored.church. Now let's go live into this week's message. Amen. There's a word from the Lord in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'm going to begin reading at verse number 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Amen. When you have it, won't you say, I got it? If you're still looking, uh, hurry up. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Uh, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. If you don't have one, uh, we brought one to you. It's on the screen here, the word of the Lord. It says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And we are afflicted in every way, but we are not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Verse 7 says again, but we have this treasure, somebody say treasure, in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed. Amen. I want to preach for a little while using as a subject, why me? Why me? Father, thank you for this time. Help us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Why me? Um, apologetics, Christian apologetics is the realm of Christian theology that helps us to make an apology or a defense for the Christian faith. When we are teaching apologetics, we are teaching people to defend and to explain why it is they believe what it is that they believe. Peter declares that when we speak to people about the faith, we need to be ready to give an answer to every man concerning the hope that is within us. And so apologetics helps us to answer the question why we have put our trust in God. One of the most difficult questions then to answer in the realm of apologetic thought is the question of theodicy. Theodicy asks the question that if God is good and if God is all-powerful, then why would a good and all-powerful God allow bad things to happen to his children? If God wants the best for me, 
and God has the power to do the best for me, then why does God allow adversity and calamity to transpire in my life? If he has the power to make everything feel good, why doesn't he make everything feel good? If he has the power to make every day a sunny day, why does he allow rain to fall in my life? If he, if he has the power to keep sickness away from me, to keep me out of debt, to keep my mind out of depression, to keep my relationships together, to keep my boss from bugging me, to keep my family from getting on my nerves, and he wants the best for me, why, does, why doesn't God do the best for me all the time? Or why does it seem as if God is not doing the best for me in the midst of my pain? That is the question of theodicy. And although I don't have a complete answer to the question, I'm not going to sit up here and pretend to be some sort of spiritual genius that I'm not. I don't know why God allows all the things to happen to us that he allows to happen to us. It's not always an issue of sin. Sometimes you haven't done anything wrong, but God still lets bad things happen. But what I've discovered is that even in the midst of those bad things, sometimes the reality is that God allows adversity in the lives of his children so that his, so that his children can be made better and so that he can get the glory. I know y'all don't get it yet, but, but the truth of the matter is sometimes God allows bad things to happen to us because bad things are never really happening to us. Bad things are happening for us. God help me. Somebody needs to understand that today, that the circumstances of your life, beloved, are never really happening to you. But if you are a child of God, if you have been purchased by Jesus Christ, if you are a believer, then the situations of your life are not happening to you. They are happening for you. As a matter of fact, Paul says, and we know that all things work together for the good of them who love God and who are the called according to his purpose. The Bible says that they're working together. That is the Greek word sunegeo. It is where we get the English word synergy. It means that the good things and the bad things are coming together synergistically to work out on your behalf. That God has the ability to take things that may not necessarily go together like good days and bad days. He has the power to take things that may not necessarily go together like great days in your marriage and bad days in your marriage he has the power to take things that may not necessarily go together like good financial seasons and bad financial seasons but somehow through his sovereignty he takes the good and the bad of your life and brings them together to make them work out for your good and so sometimes God allows bad things to happen so that you can be made better and so that he can get the glory and so that also means beloved that God is going to get the glory out of your situation no matter how bad it looks right now oh see y'all ain't with me but I'm preaching already I don't care how bad it looks to you right now God is going to get the glory out of your life I know you thought that you were going through this pain because God was picking on you and I know you thought that you were going through this season because the devil did not like you but you got to understand
pain that sometimes you're going through because God wants to get some glory out of your life. That God sometimes allows situations to happen in your life so that he can set the stage for him to get the glory. If everything easy was easy in your life, then somehow down the road you would think that you had done it yourself. If everything was going the way you wanted it to go, then when it was all said and done, you would believe that you had made it happen on your own. But God allows all hell to break loose. He allows life to bring you to your knees. He allows a loved one to die when you least expected it. He allows your job to let you go when you needed the money the most. He allows your health to fail you, your finances to go crazy, for your plan to fall apart. So that when it's all said and done, when you come out on top, you'll have to look at your life and say, no one could do that for me but God. And I don't know who I'm preaching to in the building today, but is there anybody here who can look back over the pages of your biography and as you read your own story, you know that there were situations that you thought you were not going to survive, but somehow you made it out and God got the glory out of your life. And I don't know who I'm preaching to, beloved, but that's the point that Paul is trying to communicate in the circumference of our text. Paul is writing this second epistle to the Corinthian church because he wrote a first epistle to the Corinthians trying to get them in apostolic order. The Corinthian church was a young church. They were gifted. They had a lot of resources, but they were immature. And so Paul writes first Corinthians to the Corinthian church to get them together, to explain to them what orderly worship looks like, to explain to them what the spiritual gifts look like, to explain to them uh, that the greatest gift is not speaking in tongues of prophecy, but the greatest gift is love. Paul writes this letter to get them together, but in response, just like every immature person, when Paul writes them and corrects them, the Corinthian church has people within it that says, who is this person named Paul? What authority does he have to try to get us together? Wasn't he just persecuting the church a few years ago? Who does he think he is to try to tell us how we should do church? And the Bible says that in response to that criticism, Paul writes 2 Corinthians to defend his apostolic ministry. As a matter of fact, the major criticism against Paul was that if he was really an apostle, why was he going through all of the hell that he was going through? Why had he been beaten and left for dead? Why was he broke and didn't have no money? All the other apostles like James and Peter and the rest of them were doing all right. They were called super apostles. But Paul was going through. Paul had been locked up. Paul had been beaten. Paul had been shipwrecked. And they said, if you were really an apostle, you wouldn't really be going through what you're going through. And I want to correct somebody's theology because somebody feels like that today. You feel like if God was really on your side, if you were really on the Lord's side, then you wouldn't be going through all the hell that you're going through. But what Paul tells them is that the mark of somebody who is really anointed by God is not that you don't go through trouble ever, but it's that you go through trouble and that you're still here. Oh God, who am I preaching to? Is there anybody here who can say that's your testimony that God let you go through trouble and the reason you know he loves you is because you shouldn't have made it, but you're still here. You shouldn't have your right mind. You shouldn't have the money that you have. You shouldn't be married to who you're married to. You shouldn't be able to come to church without shedding a tear as soon as you walk 
walk through the door, but somehow or another, Paul said, the reason I know God is with me is because I am still here. That I should have been dead. I should have been written off. I should have been cast away. I should have drowned in the sea when they were taking me to jail. But somehow or another, when I look back over my life, I'm still standing. And Paul says that the mark of a true believer is not someone who will never go through trouble, but it is someone who can go through trouble and stay with God. And I don't know who I'm preaching to in the building, but there were some people here who are tempted to walk away from the faith. You'll never say it out loud. You'll still keep your hallelujah in the church house. You'll never tell anybody that you wanted to give up on church, but deep down on the inside, you're wondering if this faith thing really works because the more you give, it seems like the more bills you have. The harder you praise them, it seems like the more depressed you become. The more you try, the more Satan seems to attack you, but God wants you to know that if you stick with Jesus, it'll be all right after a while. If you stick with Jesus, he'll work it out on your behalf. And so Paul says, you've got to understand that the affliction that we're going through has been ordained by God so that he can get the glory out of our lives. As a matter of fact, Paul tells them this in verse 7. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. God, help me. I got to stop right there. First of all, he says, we have this treasure. Somebody say treasure. Oh, somebody say treasure. Oh, what treasure? What treasure is Paul talking about? The treasure that Paul is talking about. If you read 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 2 and 3, the treasure that Paul is talking about is the grace of God. Now, you got to understand, I've been telling you this for several weeks, that grace should not be confused with mercy. That grace is not the same thing as mercy. Mercy is when God withholds punishment that you do deserve. But grace is divine assistance. Grace is help that comes from God so that you can accomplish a task. And the Bible says that Paul says that God has deposited the treasure of grace into earthen vessels. God, help me. You don't get it yet. He says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Yeah, earthen vessels. What is the significance then of an earthen vessel? Well, in the first century, you have to understand that everybody could not afford safes and chests and jewelry boxes. And so uh, history lets us know that when someone had something of great value, they would put it earthen vessel is just Greek for clay pot. He says, we have this treasure, beloved. If you have an ESV Bible or, or modern translation, they'll call it jars of clay. Uh, they put that treasure then in jars of clay to protect it from thieves. The Bible says that he puts uh, treasure in us in jars of clay. So the first thing we understand about the treasure is that God hides his treasure, listen, in unexpected places. Yeah, he hides his treasure in unexpected places. Uh, the by, uh, history tells us that the owner of the treasure would take the treasure and put it in a clay pot and leave it in the house because thieves would be expecting expensive treasure to be put in expensive looking places. But because the 
owner of the treasure was wise. He didn't put the treasure in expensive looking places. He put the treasure in a place where it would be least expected to be found so that when thieves came in the house, they would walk past the clay pots and miss the treasure. God help me, you ain't got it yet. Some of you are wondering why you've been looked past and looked over and while everybody has been walking by you and hasn't, and hasn't noticed your gift and hasn't pulled you in close, it's because God has put a treasure in unexpected places because there are thieves that if they knew you were as anointed as you were, if they knew you were as gifted as you were, if they knew that you had as much as you had, God help me, they would take advantage of you, they would steal you. Some of you need to be glad that your last pastor didn't lay hands on you, that your last church didn't put you into ministry because they would have sucked you dry. But God has put treasure in unexpected places. I know I don't look like much. I know that I don't look like everybody else. I know that I don't have what everyone else has. But God puts treasure in earthen vessels. He hides his treasure in unexpected places. God, help me. Is there anybody here who's glad that you don't look like everybody else? Glad that you don't fit in with everybody else? Glad that you don't fit the bill of what they say a Christian, a believer, a prophet, a prophetess, a worship leader should look like. Because if you look like something, then they would try to take everything from you. But God hid you so that people will walk past you and not take advantage of you. It says we have this treasure in earthen vessels. God hides his treasure in unexpected places. But not only this, God places his treasure in undeserving places. Yeah. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Now, here, here's the thing. Clay pots were used, Pam, to hide treasure. But that's not the purpose for which clay pots were really supposed to be used for in that day. Because in the first century, they had no running water system. They had no sewer system. They had no plumbing system. They didn't have any facilities for you to relieve yourself. You understand what I'm saying? And so the clay pots were used to hold waste from the body. That was the purpose for which they were created. That you would fill the pot with waste. You would fill the pot with mess. You would fill the pot and then you would take it out and throw it into a running stream of water. But look at what Paul says. Paul says that we are clay pots. That we should be holding mess. That we should be holding garbage. That we should be relegated to contain the garbage that flows from our lives because we were mean and nasty and trifling and rebellious and religious and gossiping and whoremongers. And the Bible says that we are clay pots and we should have mess on the inside of us. But instead of making us hold the mess that should be on the inside of us, the Bible says God moves the mess and replaces it with treasure. God help me. 
Y'all ain't happy yet. The Bible says we have treasure in a place that should have mess in it, in a place that should have waste in it, in a place that should be cast out. God has deposited treasure in undeserving places. And I don't know who I'm preaching to in the building, but there's somebody who needs to, uh, who needs to understand that you don't deserve to be as gifted as you are. You don't deserve to have as much as you have. You don't deserve to be in your right mind. God says after all the mess that you've caused, you should have to hold the mess that you've made in your life. But the Bible says that there was a man named Jesus who held your mess so that you could hold his treasure. God, help me. Is there anybody here who's glad that it doesn't have to be Easter for you to remember that God took your place, that Jesus held the mess of your life so that he could give you a treasure called grace and you could hold it even when you don't deserve it. He says, we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of us. God allows adversity in the lives of his children so that he can be glorified. So then the question becomes, I'm almost finished. The question becomes then, how does God get the glory from the adversity in my life? How, how does God get glory out of a jacked up situation? How, how does God get glory out of the fact that I gave my last in church and now I don't know how my rent going to get paid? How, how does God, how does God get glory out of the fact that I got tons of faith, but JEA don't take faith payments. How, how does God get the glory out of my life? And the way that God gets the glory out of the adversity in your life is because adversity gives you the opportunity to reflect on the goodness of God in spite of your pain. Yeah. Adversity gives you an opportunity to say you tried the Lord. God help me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Adversity pre presents you with a stage to show the world that God is worthy to be trusted. I know you think I'm making it up, but Paul tells us in verses 8 and 9. What does Paul say? Paul says, I, I know that God is getting the glory out of my life first of all because God has prevented me from being pulverized by the pressures of life. He says, look, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. God help me. The King James says we are hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed. And Paul says, look, I've got pressure all around me. I've got stuff that's happening to me, but 
in spite of all of the pressure, I should be crushed, but I'm not crushed. God, help me. Literally, the word crushed means no room. It means no space. It means to be back in a corner with nowhere to go. And what Paul is saying is that I should be crushed by the problems of my life. But because of the grace of God, I'm able to look at the problems of my life and say, God, I still trust you. I'm not crushed under the weight of pressure. Is there anybody here who can be real with me? Just take off your church face for a moment and tell me if you've had to deal with pressure. Now, I'm not talking about just any kind of pressure. I'm talking about real pressure. I'm talking about don't know how God is going to make a way. Don't know how you're going to get healed. Don't know how it's going to get fixed. Anybody ever been hard pressed? And Paul doesn't say I'm just hard pressed in one direction. He says I'm hard pressed on every side. Paul says everywhere I look there's pressure. Everywhere I go there's a problem. Everywhere I look it looks like something is going wrong. But in spite of that God has prevented me from being pulverized by the pressure. I'm still here. I'm afflicted in every way imaginable. If you ask me if I got money problems I can check that box. If you ask me if I'm dealing with depression I can check that box. If you ask me if I got problems in my relationship I can check that box. I got car trouble. I got house trouble. My landlord getting on my nerves. My neighbors are driving me crazy. My kids won't behave. My boss wants to see me fired. My co-workers are some tattletales. I'm hard pressed on every side but in spite of that everybody around me is crumbling under the pressure but for some reason I'm able to stand up straight with my head held high because God is a keeper. Yeah. God has prevented me from being pulverized by the pressure of life but I also know that God is getting the glory because God has kept me from being consumed by the confusion of life. Look at what he says. He says, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. But then he says, we are perplexed but not despairing. Yeah. We are perplexed. I am confused. Notice that Paul is not in denial about the severity of his situation. Paul says, yeah, y'all pretty much put all my business out there to say that I'm not a real apostle. I'm not going to lie like some of the other pastors do and act like I don't have any problems. I really got all this stuff going on. I, I really don't know what's happening in my life. I'm honestly low, low confused by all of the calamity that is happening in my life. But Paul says, in spite of me not knowing what to do, I am not in despair. God help me oh lord is there anybody here who cannot be honest about your situation and say you for real for real don't know what to do you don't know how you're going to handle it you don't know how you're going to work it out you got problems that are going to confront you after we give the benediction and you go out into the parking lot and you check your phone there are going to be problems that face you and you have no idea how you're going to fix it but you do know one thing god is in control and that's what paul is trying to let us know paul said I don't know how it's going to be fixed. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know how God is going to work it out, but I know he is going to work it out. Is there anybody here who has childlike faith that when God says he's going to work it out, you may not understand how he's going to fix it, but you trust that he is going to fix it for he knows the thoughts that he thinks towards you. Thank you, Holy Ghost. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. And when 
I should be consumed by the confusion of life, when I should be perplexed and in despair. God says, I'm not going to allow you to crumble under the weight of life. I know you don't know where you're going to work next month. I know you don't know how it's going to get paid. I know that all of these things are happening to you and you've got goals and you've got dreams and you've got plans and things that you want to see happen and it doesn't look like they're going to come to pass. Stop tripping and stop living in denial like everything is okay. God knows you got problems but just because you got problems you can be perplexed and at the same time not in despair. Is there anybody here who understands God help me? Let me give it to you like this. I thought that would shout you but let me give it to you this way. Hopefully this will help you because it still seems like y'all sleep on me this morning. Uh, so I was going to a meeting. I had a 12 o'clock meeting uh, one day and I was on my way to a 12 o'clock meeting and I, got, I was on the way to a 12 o'clock meeting and at my condo uh, there's an elevator and when I was going down the elevator, Pam, uh, uh, the elevator stopped in between the second and the first floor. I was stuck in the elevator on a hot summer day and I was on the phone with my mom and I called my wife and I was on the phone with my mom and my wife uh, and there was no signal for real in the elevator so my calls kept dropping and so uh, I decided that I was going to open up my backpack because I had my backpack with me. I decided I was going to open up my backpack and start working on some stuff uh, and I was going to wait uh, for help to come and so help finally got there the maintenance man and the elevator technician finally got there and they asked me they said man wasn't it hot in here I said yes it was hot in here didn't you get scared I said yeah I was scared at first because I didn't know what was going on he said but you got your computer out and you got your books open and you got your notepad out and your pen out how were you able to just sit here in spite of the problem that was going on in the elevator and I told him I said well I knew that help was on the way and is there anybody here who can sit in the midst of the calamity of life and say the reason why I'm not losing my mind even when the elevator of life stops in between floors and it's hot in there and it seems like I've been delayed on my journey. The reason why I can chill in the midst of a crazy circumstance is because I pushed the help button and I know that sooner or later help is on the way. God says that he's going to keep you even when you're perplexed. You don't have to be in despair. Be not dismayed. Whatever be tied God will take care of you. So then God has prevented me from being pulverized by the pressure of life. God has kept me from being consumed by the confusion of life. But then thirdly, God has elected to accompany me through the adversity of life. I promise I'm in the text. He says, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not despairing. But then he says in verse nine, we are persecuted, but not forsaken. Uh, hear me now, because I wanna, I wanna deliver you uh, from church personism. Yeah. Church personism is a disease of the mind that causes you to say that nothing's wrong when stuff is really wrong. Y'all know it. Uh, how you doing? I'm blessed. Or, uh, brother, it's Father's Day. Uh, all my men, 
You ever dealt with a lady and you said, baby, what's wrong? And they say, nothing. But you know there's something wrong. Do you hear what I'm saying? It is a disease of the mind that causes you to behave as if nothing is wrong. When you can look at your life and tell that everything is wrong. Now they are challenging Paul's apostolic authority on the basis of his persecution. They are saying that if he was really an apostle, he would not be persecuted the way he is. His tank wouldn't always be on E and his bank account wouldn't always be empty and he wouldn't have as many haters talking about him as he does. Paul says, I got all that stuff going on, but even though I'm in the midst of trouble, I'm not in trouble by myself. God, help me, I feel like preaching. And the Bible says that the way Paul knows that God is being glorified in his pain is because yes, I'm persecuted, but I'm not forsaken. God, help me. Is there anybody here who can testify that you've had people to walk off from you when you were going through bad days, that when you could buy everybody's drinks and when you could give everybody gas money and when you had resources and when you were doing good, everybody was always ringing your phone, but then when you went through something and you didn't have anything to give them anymore, now all of a sudden your phone is dry, it's no longer going down in the DMs, ain't nobody hitting you up anymore because they walk away from you in the midst of persecution but Paul wants you to know that even when people walk away from you when adversity hits your life God will never leave you by yourself and is there anybody here who can say I've been alone I've been alone in the midst of my problems I've been alone in the midst of my pain I've been alone in the midst of my stuff I, I've been alone I felt alone in my marriage I, I felt alone at my job sitting around tons of people but when I look back over my life I realized that he was always there and is there anybody here who can say he will not leave me in the midst of persecution but he will stick with me the old saints would say and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own and the joy we share as we tarry there none other has ever known is there anybody here who knows that he will stay with you yeah he he says, I'm persecuted, no doubt. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm not going to argue with you uh, about whether or not I'm going through hell. I'm going through it. Yeah. I'm an apostle. I'm the most educated of the apostles. Uh, got the best resume. Should have the biggest following. Uh but there's some good-looking cat named Apollos who talks real good. They got a bigger following than me. Uh, you know, Peter, y'all call him the rock. He got a bigger church than I got. James, Jesus' little brother, is running the church in Jerusalem, and I'm out here in jail, shipwrecked. Oh, I'm persecuted. Matter of fact, I preached the gospel in a city called Ephesus, and they beat me half dead and threw me outside the gate. I'm persecuted. Paul, Paul says, I've been in jail and had to be let out the window in a basket to escape. I, I've been persecuted. I've been shipwrecked. I've been bitten by snakes. Been in the midst of a hurricane on the sea. I'm persecuted. But check my story. In the midst of all of that persecution, 
Never once was I in it by myself. God help me. Paul says I was persecuted, but he didn't forsake me. Notice that he says persecuted and not forsaken instead of persecuted and not alone. To be forsaken means that I was with you, but I left you. And Paul is trying to get us to see that everybody can be with you before persecution happens. But there are some who will leave you in the midst of persecution. But the fact that God has not forsaken him has nothing to do with him, but everything to do with the character of the one who has not left his side. Do you hear what I'm saying? God does not forsake us in trouble because forsaking us is not in his character. You do not serve a God that runs away from trouble. You serve a God that will get in trouble with you because there is no trouble big enough to trouble an almighty God. I got to quit. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. God hides his treasure in unexpected places. He places his treasure in undeserving places so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Then he says, I know that God is with me because we are afflicted in every way, yet not crushed. God prevents us from being pulverized by the pressure of life. We are perplexed, but not despairing. God kept us from being consumed by the confusion of life. We are persecuted but not forsaken. God has elected to accompany me through the adversity of life. But then fourthly and finally, I'm done. He says, we are struck down but not destroyed. Paul says, God has allowed me to live through situations that were designed to take my life. Yeah. Not, not only did God prevent me from being pulverized by the pressure of life and not only did God keep me from being consumed by the confusion of life? And not only did God elect to accompany me through the adversity of life, but Paul says God has allowed me to live through situations that were designed to take my life. He says we are struck down, but not destroyed. Some texts don't have to be preached hard. They just got to be read well. He says, we are struck down, but not destroyed. You do understand that the goal of the enemy was not to bring you to your knees. The goal of the enemy was to take your life. Satan's not looking for a knockout blow. He's trying to kill you. Satan, every time, see, you're the only one playing with the devil. The devil's not playing with you. You're, you're the only one that thinks that you can fight a full-time devil as a part-time Christian. The, 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 the devil's not playing with you. You're, you're the only one in spiritual warfare that thinks that you can be saved on Saturday night and Sunday, Sunday morning and then live the way you want to live Sunday afternoon through the rest of the week and still fight the devil and win. The devil's not playing with you. His goal is to kill you. 
And the Bible says that we know that God is at work in our lives in the midst of adversity because we've been struck down. And when we were struck down, the purpose of the strike was to destroy us. But look at your neighbor and say, it didn't work. God, help me. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what Paul is saying. Paul says, we've been struck down, but we have not been destroyed. God, help me. Paul says, look, the devil wants to take your life, but you got to understand that even when you've been struck down, God is not going to let the strike take you out, even though it might put you down for a minute. And the reason we know this, beloved, he says later on in the same chapter, the reason we know this to be true is because we're not the first people to be struck down. He says that there was a man named Jesus on a hill called Calvary who was struck down. And the purpose of the strike, Lord help me, was to take Jesus out of the game for good. And when hell started celebrating, God help me, the Bible says that even though Jesus was struck down, God did not allow him to be destroyed. Okay, I thought that would shout you. Let me do it this way. And we can go on home. Look, I'm a boxing fan. Uh, a few months ago, there was a major fight between two heavyweights, two top heavyweights in the world, uh, one from England, Tyson Fury, another one from Birmingham, Alabama, Deontay Wilder, okay? Uh, Deontay Wilder is known for his unorthodox style but his punching power, right? Deontay Wilder has an 89% knockout rate. He has not fought an opponent that he has not put on his back uh, at least one time. Tyson Fury, however, is known for his heart and for his boxing skill. He is a boxer, he's not a brawler. He may not knock you out, but he's gonna hit you and not get hit. Now me and my wife were watching this fight and it was Tyson Fury's first fight in a while. He was overcome with depression. He gained about 140 pounds. Uh, this was his first fight coming back after he said, these are his words, not mine, God delivered him from depression and put him back in the game. Okay, and so we're watching the fight, right? And in the final round of the fight, Tyson Fury catches a right hand, a right straight, right in the face from Deontay Wilder. And he slumps down on his back. I mean like a sandbag. I mean he is down on his back. We think it's over. Me and my wife looking at you like, well, there it is. But he popped up like something jumped in him. Like he popped right back up. And I thought it was over. Deontay Wilder was over in his corner celebrating. He had stood up on the top rope, was beating his chest. But Tyson Fury got up when everybody expected him to stay down. Now this is almost too easy. This, uh, this illustration, David, all my aspiring priests, is almost too easy. Look. Now, what, what struck me, Pam, was not that he got up. It was not the fashion in which he got up. 
But after the fight was over, it was a draw, by the way, means neither one won, neither one lost. It was a draw. They asked Tyson Fury how he was able to get up from a blow that nobody before him had survived. And Tyson Fury said something that shouted me in my living room. He said, there was no way that I was going to be knocked out while I was filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ. He said, bless the mighty name of Jesus. And Paul says that Satan has thrown knockout blows in your life. That there are ways that you've been hit that should have taken you out. But if you've been gifted, God help me, there it is. With the spirit of God, you'll be able to be cast down, but you'll keep on coming. Oh God, I don't know who I'm preaching to. Felicia, this might just be for you. But is there anybody here who can say, I've been hit, but I'm making a comeback. It's not going to be the end for me but God is getting ready Lord help me here God is getting ready to bring me back from places I didn't think I could come back from God says you're not going to stay down is there anybody here who can say it's not over until God says it's over you've been wondering why it's you God says I trust you enough to keep on coming God help me is there anybody here who can say thank you Mike come on I feel like preaching I've seen the lightning flashing God help me I I've heard the thunder roll. I felt sin breakers dashing, trying to conquer my soul. But I heard the voice of Jesus telling me, still fight on. And he promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. And my problem is there are so many Christians who say they trust in God, but they want to quit in the midst of of adversity. So many Christians are asking the question, why me? Why is it happening to me? Why is it my marriage? Why is it my money? Why is it my mind? Why is it my family? Why is it my health? But God says, this affliction is not unto death, but it's for the glory of God. Is there anybody here who can testify and say I believe that God is going to get some glory out of this situation do me a favor now and touch your neighbor and say neighbor God is going to get some glory out of this y'all ain't saying nothing God is going to get some glory out of this I've got sickness wrecking my body with pain but God is going to get some glory out of this sometimes me and my spouse fight like we don't like each other but God is going to get some glory out of this I don't know how I'm going to pay all of my bills but God is going to get some glory out of this. Is there 
anybody here in the building today who believes that what I'm going through is for the glory of God. I've been pressed, but I'm not crushed. I'm perplexed, but I'm not in despair. I've been persecuted, but he won't leave me by myself. Is there anybody here that can say I've been cast down, but I've not been destroyed because God will make a way out of no way. I got to leave you here, but is there anybody here who believes that the Lord is going to get some glory out of your life? You've got problems, but God is going to get the glory. Well, don't wait until he fixes it. Give him glory now. See, some of y'all waiting for it to get better before you praise him. You want to see the light at the end of the tunnel before you give him glory. But you know how you can give him glory because he'll do just what he said. Well, preacher, how do you know that he's going to make it all right? You don't know my story. You don't know my struggle. You haven't seen my credit. You don't know my finances. But I know one thing. On a hill far away, there was an old rugged cross. It was the symbol of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best fall of poor sinners was slain. Can I tell you what they did? They hung him high. They stretched him wide. They nailed him in his hands. Put nails in his feet. It was a bad day. It didn't look like God was going to get any glory out of that situation. And he died. He died. Yes. Yes, he died, but they took him down and put him in a tomb. And early one Sunday morning, he got up from the grave with all, all power in his hands. And that's how I know he'll get the glory because Jesus lives. And if he lives, I can face tomorrow. If he lives, all my fear is gone because I know who holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives is there anybody here who's glad he lives his victory gives me victory his hope gives me hope God is going to get the glory out of this if you believe Say yeah!